Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 17, 14 through 27. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? For whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with grateful hearts. And truly, we come to you by grace and grace alone. And then our lives are marked by just that, a continuation of grace and grace alone, such that we will finish our race by grace and grace alone. Father, because of grace, we want to ask you for things this morning, not because we presume, but because you command us to bring our requests and petitions to you. And so we do this in obedience. We want to pray first for the continuation of the church in Ukraine. We pray for them as they suffer and continue also by grace. We pray that they would stand strong in the face of danger, in the face of death. That they, like us, would mark their days they would number their days so that they know how to spend the ones that they have. May the churches there be marked by a clear hope in the gospel. May the churches there be strong in their exhibiting of their love and their faith. And we pray for the growth of the church in Ukraine, that they would grow in their holiness, they would grow in their hope, and they would be quick to share their hope with those around them. And Father, at the end of the day, may we be able to thank you for the work that you are doing there and that you promised to do through your people. May they be strengthened. 
Father, we praise you for those that you have sent out from our midst, particularly those who are currently in seminary. We thank you for their studies. We thank you for their desire to answer the call of of ministry and their desire to pursue training. We thank you for the discipleship they received here amongst us, amongst our membership. And we thank you for their studies now. We pray that they would commit to their studies, seeing them not just as a means to a grade or a means to graduation, but these are investment into their own souls, into the gospel, and into their future churches. And we do pray for the future churches that they will serve. We pray that they would serve well in those churches, exhibiting the giftedness that you've given them for your sake and for the sake of your people wherever you plant them. And Father, we pray for more. We pray that you would raise up more workers from our midst, that we would send many out. We would send them to seminary. We would send them to church plant. We would send them to the mission field. Father, that we would be a sending church who is quick to encourage those who sense a call from you, quick to discern and affirm those who we sense that calling in, and then quick to send them out. May you send more. Father, we also want to pray for those in our midst, particularly our older saints. I thank you for the example they set for those of us who are younger, that they set an example of faith, of courage, of steadfastness. Pray that they would be encouraged by your word, by your people, that they would be filled with resolute hope, that even as their outward man is wasting away, that their inner man would be renewed day by day by your word, by your spirit, and may they continue in steadfastness. Father, as we turn our attention specifically to your word, may you teach us. Open our minds, open our hearts, open our ears. Remove distraction so that we might hear from you through your word. Be with me in my, in my weakness and my feebleness to be able to convey your word, not to misconstrue it, not to muddy it, but to explain the clearness of your text that is before us. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for shaping us. And as you promised to do by working through your spirit, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be finishing this chapter this morning. We've got three sections to work through. Matthew 14 to 27. You're familiar with the saying, I'm sure, what goes up must come down. This is true of just about everything, right? It's true of airplanes. It's true of sugar rushes. It's true of gas prices, Lord willing. It's true of mountain climbers. It's true of the hopes of Cowboys fans. And it's true of Camp Highs. What goes up must come down. And we're going to see this morning that Jesus has taken three of his disciples to a literal and figurative mountain peak in the story of Jesus' life, in the account that Matthew records for us. They're at the height, but at the height they come crashing quickly back to earth. And so as we survey this text, the main idea that I believe is here, and so the main idea of our time this morning is this, that true faith, even weak faith, But true faith is enough to move the mountain because Jesus pays the way. True faith, even weak faith, is enough to move the mountain because Jesus pays the way. Let's look in verse 14 again. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. 
And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. After traveling to the proverbial edge of heaven, Jesus and these disciples come down the mountain and they find a frantic father abruptly kneeling before Jesus, begging for the life of his son. And he explains that he's being attacked by some sort of seizures, which then Jesus describes as demonic activity. It's not clear whether the father recognizes it as demonic activity, but Jesus clearly does. Now, don't let your modern sensibilities or your Bible professor convince you that this is something other than demonic activity. And this father is concerned with the life of his son, right? The demon seems to attack when the son is vulnerable, when he's next to water or next to a fire. And so this dad, aware of the reputation of Jesus, brings his son before him. But what does he find? He finds Jesus gone. Jesus has gone up the mountain, and now he's left with nine of Jesus' followers, And he thinks, great, maybe they can do something. Surely they can help. And they should have been able to, right? Jesus, all the way back in Matthew chapter 10, had given his disciples the authority to cast out demons. But they're stumped. They're not able to cast him out, and the father is left frustrated. And so Jesus responds with a rebuke. But notice before he rebukes the demon, he rebukes those who are within earshot. Faithless and twisted, he calls them. Or another way of putting it, unbelieving and perverse. In some sense, as we've walked through Matthew, we have been exposed to the faithlessness, the unbelievingness, the perverseness of the generation. They follow after the example set by the religious leaders. Jesus later in Matthew's gospel will say that those who follow the religious leaders of the day, they're twice as much sons of hell as they themselves are. Jesus in John chapter 8 even says, you are of your father who is the devil. And so this culture that has bought in hook, line, and sinker to the teaching of the religious elite, they are more familiar with the spirit of hell than with the spirit-filled man of heaven. And so this new Moses who comes off of the mountaintop after experiencing and demonstrating the glory of God doesn't find a people worshiping a golden calf, because if you'll remember, when Moses, has come, when Moses comes down, the reason they were worshiping the golden calf was because they thought that would be a way of worshiping God. They were, they were giving in to idolatry. But here we see when Jesus comes down on the mountain, there's no veil here. They are dabbling in the demonic, and they're suffering from it. And so he makes this remark, they are faithless and they are twisted. But even though this is a general statement to the crowd at large, there would have been a certain bite to the disciples because they knew better. They had been educated and commissioned to deal with this very thing. And so before we move on, I want you to see this underlying principle that when the professed people of God lack faith in God, then the people around us suffer. See, the disciples had the authority to help the people but they lacked faith. In other words, to address people's problems in the name of Jesus without the spirit of Jesus, we leave them worse off. The true work of Jesus and his aims will never be separated from the movement of his spirit. And how do we cooperate with the spirit? It is by faith. 
by faith that God, who is spirit, will work in the ways that he has promised to work. But Jesus does not let the failure of his disciples prevent him from demonstrating compassion. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus comes in compassion to the boy, and the language here is not just that the effect was immediate, but that it was absolute. You might have a footnote that says the word instantly there could actually be translated from that hour. See, when Jesus cast out a demon, it's done. The demon is done away with completely. And so the disciples, they come back to Jesus, tails tucked between their legs, and they ask, why? Why? Why could we not do this? And so Jesus, just like any good teacher, any good coach, pulls down the, the, the slide projector and says, let's go to the replay. It's because of your little faith. And now in the same breath, Jesus will then go on and to commend that faith the size of a gr- mustard seed can, you, can do impossible things. So the point here is not about the strength or the weakness of the faith or the amount of faith, but the concern here is of the type of faith. D.A. Carson actually translates this verse as having poor faith. So Jesus is not concerned with their amount of faith more than he is concerned with the poverty of their faith. Their faith, whether strong or weak, it didn't matter. Their faith was in something weak and feeble. Now, we get no explanation here other than what we see in front of us. But it seems likely, based on the disciples' demeanor, that their faith could have been exemplified in one of two ways. The first is pride. Did you know that pride is a form of faithlessness? If faith is dependent on God, then pride is dependent on self. It is possible to assume that because they had the authority to cast out the demon on their own right, they come swaggering up to this helpless father and they say with their best, most narrator-y voice, be gone, minion of Satan. And everybody watches, silently in bated breath. And then the silent is broken by another fit from the boy. See, pride did nothing for them. Pride is confidence in self. Pride assumes sufficient ability and competency in self. Pride looks to self and says, you are enough. And isn't that the gospel of our age? Isn't that what our age is peddling, that you are enough? Self-sufficiency, self-autonomy, self-esteem, self-confidence. Self-confidence, friends, is self-deceit. 1 Corinthians 3.18 puts it this way, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. See, Jesus never intended to work through the strength of his disciples. 
Remember, he didn't call us because we were strong, we were many, we were powerful, we were wise. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus intends to work through our faith to demonstrate his strength, not our own. Or maybe, maybe the poverty of their faith comes from doubt. Doubt also is a form of faithlessness. See, these nine disciples, they didn't have the privilege of going with Jesus onto the mountaintop, and so they're left as they watch Jesus and the three disciples, the A-team, as it were, rounding the corner, going up. And so maybe they're sitting there thinking, all right, we're just going to sit here, we're going to put our hands in our laps, we're going to twiddle our thumbs, and we're not going to mess with anything. We're not going to break anything until Jesus comes back. And then their hopes are dashed because the father with the helpless son walks up to them and says, where's Jesus? And they're, well, he just went that way. Okay, maybe, maybe it's our turn to help. But I can't do this. I'm not enough. I can't, I can't deal with a real life demon. How am I supposed to do this? You see that both of these problems have the same root. Pride and doubt they come from the self, same place. They both miss the point because faithlessness is more concerned with self than with God. A poor faith, a faith of poverty, a faith that will get you nothing is a faith that is centered on you. Whether you have all the confidence in the world or none of it, faithlessness is when you center everything on yourself. You make yourself the gauge and the power of your faith. And this whole scene, there's one person that seems to get this. And we don't see it in Matthew's gospel. It actually becomes clear in Mark's gospel. It's the father of the boy. Mark chapter 9, verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water and to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And so Jesus introduces this freeing paradigm to his disciples and to us. Faith in self is bankrupt. Faith in God is powerful. So much so that even if you have a minuscule amount of faith, a grain of a mustard seed amount of faith, it is potent enough to move a mountain. But why is faith so powerful? Why even such a minuscule amount? Because faith rests not in you, but in the promises of God. Faith hears the word of God and says, yes, that's true. Faith says the power is from God and not from self. And here we see that true faith can say to a mountain, move, and it will move. Now, much ink has been spent explaining what mountains you could move if you had this kind of faith. Your relational strife is the mountain. Have enough faith and, and it can be moved. Your financial difficulty is the mountain. If you have enough faith, even just a little bit, you can say to that mountain, move, and it'll be moved. Much is truly accomplished by true faith. But I think that Jesus is directing our attention less to the specific problem and more to a specific mountain he intends to move. I think we're seeing a tip of the hat here, okay? Flip over to Matthew 21, verse 21, just a page or two over. Because he'll say something very similar. He has just left the temple after clearing out the money changers. 
Matthew 21, verse 21, and he's just cursed this fig tree. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So this will get fleshed out more as we go along, but I just want to start setting your eyes in this direction. That Jesus here is heading towards the temple. And so by saying, move this mountain, he's referring to something specific because the temple was the center of worship in Israel. It's the house of the Lord where God's covenantal presence dwelt amongst his people. And so people would come and they would commune with God through the sacrifices, through the work of the priest, and they would worship. So Jesus calling his disciples isn't just about moving a mountain that is inconveniently placed. It is about moving the center of worship for his people. And Jesus actually makes this explicitly clear in the book of John. John chapter 4, he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. Listen to what he says. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Then he says this, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so this isn't about the faith that moves mountains. It is the faith in God that moves the mountain. And this is true for the strong or for the weak faith. The the concern is true faith in the true gospel of Christ. Imagine for a moment two men who are both traveling to the same place. And they're both set to board the same airplane. Before they get on, the gate attendant says there is expected turbulence. And so anybody who would choose not to come on the plane is fine. They'll get a voucher. They can come back on a later date. And one of these men is filled with great confidence. And so he boards the plane with joy in his heart and laughter in his mouth. But the other man is filled with trembling and with fear. But he boards nonetheless, knowing he has no other options. And so throughout takeoff, throughout the flight, there's drops in altitude. There is turbulence. It's as shaky as it was announced to be. And with one last bump, they both land in the same place safely on the runway. Each of these passengers arrives in the same place, both exhibiting different levels of trust, but both experiencing the safe passage by way of the same plane. Well, here we see that there is something about this mountain being moved that is given to those of strong faith and weak faith, given to those who have much faith and given to those who have little, but those who have their faith in the same thing. Now, before we get to talking about what that thing is in which we have our faith, I need to make mention, because you might believe that your Bible is misprinted, because you'll see that we go from verse 20 to verse 22. 
You know, maybe yours has a footnote here. Mine does. It says, some in manuscripts insert verse 21, which says, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Well, based on the oldest and most reliable manuscripts that we have, there's not evidence to suggest that Matthew actually wrote that verse. That verse seems to be have written by Mark, but not by Matthew. And so at some point, this was included in some of the modern manuscripts for Matthew, but it is, doesn't seem to be the most reliable. Two things. One, this is called textual criticism. Whenever they look at the manuscripts and they determine what actually was written by the particular authors. And this is actually evidence to the fact that God has providentially given us reliable translation of his word. This shouldn't cause us to doubt the Bible that we hold in our hands. In fact, it shows that Christians are dealing honestly with the text we have been given. And so this verse fits in the context, certainly, but it doesn't seem to be what the Spirit empowered Matthew to write. And so we shouldn't be concerned. We're actually noting it. We're dealing honestly with what we have and what we don't have. And so it seems as though Matthew didn't write that. So with that being said, we skip verse 21 and we go on to verse 22 in which we find how this mountain is to be moved. Verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Sometimes it's kind of a bummer walking with Jesus, isn't it? I mean, he has literally just demonstrated his glory on the mountaintop. Peter has made the great confession, and he's keeping ever in front of his disciples, yeah, I'm going to be delivered up, and I'm going to die. Jesus explains yet again what his experiences be. He can't let his disciples forget it. He's going to be handed over to the men who want him dead, and they're going to win. They're going to execute him. But this is not a new story, right? Jesus has already laid this out for his disciples and he will lay it out again and again. And then Jesus in Matthew 23 will say, this is actually a rerun of an old movie. The prophets all along have been delivered before the people and the people have revolted and killed them. Again and again and again. But this isn't just one more movie in the running series. Jesus is the final prophet sent from God but he too will be rejected and killed. And in so doing, Jesus will destroy the function of the physical temple. And Jesus makes this clear in several places, chiefly in the book of John, John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. Is it great comfort to you that the disciples play catch up all the way until the resurrection? Right? It's kind of like when someone tells me a really good joke, it takes some time and an explanation for me to really get it. Well, notice that the disciples, they have just come off the mount with Jesus, and look at what verse 13 says. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. They are just, John the Baptist has been dead for a while, and they're just now catching up there. So now, when they hear Jesus telling about his death, they're still playing catch-up. So they hear this idea of death, and they're filled with distress, fear, and worry. 
And as we'll see, even in the next chapter, the disciples are not on, this bo- on board with this whole suffering to glory mindset that Jesus has. They're almost flat ignoring Jesus. Because notice how Jesus ends that. On the third day, he will be raised. Jesus ends with resurrection. But because they're so fearful of death, they miss it. It's like they're flat ignoring Jesus. It's like whenever that check engine light comes on and you take some of that electrical tape and you just taper over it, right? So you can't see what's really going on. That's what the disciples are doing. They're just flat ignoring what Jesus said. When they get to verse 18, they're going to say, all right, Jesus, that whole death and dying thing is, is fine and all, but, but in the kingdom, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to receive all the honor? And Jesus, again, will temp, temper their expectations. And so this must have felt like free fall with the disciples, right? Even particularly the three that got to go up on the mountain. They're coming down, and Jesus tells them, actually, we're going to go all the way to the ground, into the ground. We're going by way of death. And so we ought to understand that we who put our faith in God, we don't get to pick and choose what God tells us. We don't get to ignore the inconvenient, the painful, the difficult part of God's intentions for us. Why? Because when we miss the painful parts of God's plan, we miss the beauty. Notice how the disciples have shut their ears to the thought of death that they miss resurrection. And friends, there is no resurrection without death. There is no glory without suffering. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. In other words, if we miss the cross, we miss the gospel. And in our day and age, we might not balk at Jesus' words here because we're so familiar with him, because we're so familiar with what Jesus says, but this would have been devastating for the disciples. They're expecting Jesus to usher in the kingdom at this point, and that is certainly what he's doing, but not in the way that they expect. But Jesus, again, will do something quite odd to show how he's planning on doing this. And that's where we enter with our last section here, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your, Peter, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Lastly, Matthew records this odd story. Peter is asked by a group if Jesus pays the temple tax. And this tax would have been reminiscent of the tax instituted in Exodus for the worship in the tabernacle to support the work there. It seems to be a continuation of that. And Peter says, yes, he does pay the tax. And that's the end of that. But then Jesus comes home, and Jesus goes out of his way to confront Peter and said, what do you think, Peter? Do the kings of the earth tax their sons or others? Well, the answer, of course, is others. The royal family is exempt because of their royal privilege. They are sons, and so Peter answers the same. Maybe Peter's confused. Thanks for clearing that up, Jesus. I understand a lot more now. But then Jesus does something strange. He says, Peter, go, cast a hook out, and catch a fish. It'll have a shekel, and it'll pay the temple tax for you and for me. 
Now I'm always down for a good fishing story, but this one's odd for sure. Yet here it is, right where the Spirit intended Matthew to record it. And it's here, no other place, no other gospel records this interaction between Jesus and Peter. And there's a few reasons why I think it's here. There's one that's obvious from the text, right? It's a further illustration of the wisdom and timing of Jesus. Notice that he says, so as to not give offense to them. Jesus isn't picking a fight yet. He's not instigating yet. He's submitting to even the religious system of the day. And that's the most explicit reason we have here. But there's also, within the context, a second and greater reason. It's to demonstrate the humility of Jesus. Jesus uses the parable of the king and his sons to illustrate what his own life means to Peter. Because remember, what Peter has just heard and is likely still ringing in his ears. Look back at chapter 17, verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Peter has in his mind the fact that God the Father has just announced to him that Jesus is his own son. So what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is leveraging here in Peter's mind is the reminder that I'm the son, but I'm going to pay the tax. See, Jesus is forsaking his status as a son to be counted among the others. Philippians 2 verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, in the incarnation, in the coming of Christ, we see the uh, condescension of the Son of God, the one deserving of all glory, honor, and praise. The one who in his sovereignty over the cosmos, who by his very word orchestrates the movements of man, fish, and water. Who is ordaining that Peter would go and catch a fish and there would be a sufficient payment in its mouth. The one to whom the worship in the temple is due is now pain a due. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to make payment for the sins of the people. And the last reason that I believe this passage is here is because it gives us an example of faith. We are not told that Jesus issued this as a command or that Peter carried it out. So, speculation hat for a second. But we don't have any reason to believe he didn't. Many times in Peter's life, Jesus teaches Peter by, by object lesson, by water and by fish. Now, Peter peaked early, right? Matthew 16 is Peter's high point in Matthew's narrative. And he's having a couple of blows to his ego since then, right? He's been called Satan by Jesus. He was interrupted by the Father. And so maybe Peter is a little timid at this point. Maybe he's a little afraid to open his mouth. And you can almost imagine that Jesus has told this to Peter and Peter's maybe a little hesitant. 
Really, Jesus? You, you want me to go and catch a fish and to pay a temple tax? Okay, if, if that's what you want me to do. So he takes his bait caster, he goes out to the water, launches his rattle trap out into the water. Weak, feeble, small, but faith. Faith nonetheless. This is the obedience of faith, listening to the words of Jesus and responding, saying, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know why I'm doing this, but this is what Jesus told me to do. Because Jesus said it, I'm, I'm going to do it. This is the type of faith by which Jesus provides payment for. Because what does Peter find when he pulls that fish out of the water? He finds that he has in his hand sufficient payment to enter into the temple of God. Jesus provided everything that Peter needed, not because Peter was wise, not because Peter was strong, but because Peter had faith in Christ to pay his due for him. This is not necessarily a story that Peter would brag about, right? You brag about the, the, the one where you catch the big fish, but this might have been a small fish, but it was enough. And so this is the type of faith that we're called to. We're called to trust in the all-sufficient work of Christ who came and paid our dues for us so that we don't have to go to the physical temple, but we by his spirit are joined with him who is the temple of God himself. He is the presence of God for us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And those of us who are strong and those of us who are weak are united by the same means, by faith in him and his work. And so here in a minute, we're gonna get to practice this, right? It is in faith that we're going to approach the temple today, or approach the table today, reminding ourselves that it is not by strength, it is not by merit, it is not by deed that we approach the presence of God, but by faith, faith in the all-sufficient work of Christ on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, you are kind to send your son to pay our dues. And Father, we confess our faithlessness. We confess our pride, we confess our doubt, that we look to ourselves instead of looking to your son. Remove our blinders, make it clear to us where our trust relies so that we might trust Christ and in Christ alone. Would you do that in us? Would you give us faith? Faith in a strong Christ who has paid the ransom on our behalf. May we worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen.